0: If you would, turn in your Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 22. We'll be looking today at verses 41 through 46. And as you find your place there, let's begin this time with prayer. Gracious Father, we come before your holy word right now to, Lord, be fed, um, to be transformed, Lord, to be challenged and disciplined and uplifted and comforted by the living word of God. Lord, I pray that, Father, your word would do a supernatural work in our hearts and lives in a way that no other book that exists in this world can accomplish. We thank you, Father, that this is truly what we need to hear today. It is the reason that we are here gathered. And so, Father, I pray that that you would speak through your servant and that you would edify this church by its words in jesus name amen i don't know if you've ever had the chance to study your genealogy i had an opportunity thanks to brother terry to uh see a little bit of the history of my family and uh Believe it or not, I didn't find out anything interesting. (laughs) There was no celebrities. There were. It's all interesting because it's history. But um, it was just interesting to make connections to people that I've never got to meet. But as you've studied your genealogy, maybe you've come across some pretty alarming things. Maybe you had criminals in your background. Maybe you had some really detestable people. you got to ask yourself, what does that really mean? I mean, how does that really affect you? Whether you are related to presidents or you are related to murderers, that doesn't really have a great effect upon us. It doesn't change who we are. It's in the past. And so genealogies are really Uh, more than anything an opportunity just to learn about history and maybe we can see how things have changed in our lives maybe we can see how uh, genes that have been passed on through the generations continue to uh, surface in our own lives but ultimately that history is is exactly that it's history It has very little impact or meaning for us today as to the people that we are. But when we come to the scriptures, the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ is very different. It's not only history, but it is important to the very theology of what we believe about Jesus. And obviously there's a lot of emphasis on genealogy there's a lot of emphasis throughout all of the scripture of not only the person that you may be hearing about, but the, the relationship of that person. Oftentimes you are not just Isaac, you are Isaac, the son of Abraham, or you are uh, you know hearing of the lineage of these people and that has great emphasis on the people of, of Israel. And most particularly, the emphasis on Jesus. And it's really the theme of, of our uh, subject this morning, the theme of our uh, verse this morning, as Jesus considers the genealogy of the Messiah. He raises this question to the Pharisees about the genealogy of this Messiah that they are looking for. And the reason that he asked the question is because he wants them to publicly acknowledge who the Messiah really is, and he wants to draw out the theological truth from their answer and his ultimate answer. And so we are looking at Matthew 22, and we are looking at this understanding of the Messiah and let me read these verses, and then we'll, we'll, we'll dive into it. Jesus is, uh, by the way, still in the temple. And he has just engaged in uh, confrontation with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the, the scribes. And they have asked him questions. And now he is asking a question of them. Look at verse 41. If then David calls him Lord, Jesus says, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Now, as I said, Jesus is turning the tables on the Pharisees. He is now asking them questions. And what's important for us to remember is that he is asking these questions publicly the connection from this passage from, to the previous passages is the words, as the Pharisees were gathered together. Same setting, same environment. The Pharisees were gathering together to entrap Jesus. They're trying to ask him these questions. He's able to wisely answer the questions. He's doing it publicly. So all that's happened here is that Jesus has only... Um, he's only solidified his stock among the people he's only increased and 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 helped his public opinion you could say and the pharisees are upset about it they're angry about it they're frustrated about it because he's so wise in his in his uh response to them and it seems like it's all over but now jesus turns and begins to challenge them publicly he challenges them as they are gathered together and he does so because he needs to correct their theology he needs to correct their understanding of who the messiah is and through this he is going to teach them that the messiah is not just a moral descendant of the son of david he's much more than that he's not only the uh the mortal descendant of David he is the son of God and that has great theological importance not only for those who will believe in Jesus as the Messiah but for us today knowing that the salvation of our souls cannot be fulfilled by a mere mortal man that is related to King David that his genealogy to David is not enough that he must both be God and man, son of David or son of man and son of God. And we can see that throughout the, the, the history that God is, has revealed in this world that he's bringing salvation to sinners through this person, the Jesus of Nazareth, who is this promised Messiah, who is the son of man and the son of God. And so the question that he asks is, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Now, if we're not careful, we oftentimes think of the Christ as the last name of Jesus. We just get used to that, right? That we just think that, that you know, Jesus' mailbox has, you know, Christ on the, on, written on the outside of it. And we forget that Christ is the designation of Jesus. It's his title, But in the early early scriptures in the Old Testament, the Christ, which by the way means the Messiah, which actually means the anointed one, it, it referred to people who were anointed. So there was this act of anointing in the Old Testament that God instilled, and we now know that that all pointed to Jesus. It was... It was the decision of God, it was the plan of God that he would anoint people for a special purpose or a special uh, function. The word anointed really just means to smear something, to pour something on something else. Okay, this morning you may have, have had waffles for breakfast and you would have anointed your waffles with maple syrup. You are pouring that upon the waffles, right? Some of you maybe anointed yourself this morning with some perfume or some cologne, and let us just encourage you that less is more, okay? Let's sprinkle and dab, let's not anoint. But the idea was, is is this process of anointing became a designation by which God would say, this person is set apart for a special function and a representative of me. And so what you began to see is that uh, the kings of Israel became those who were anointed for service of Yahweh. In Samuel, or 1 Samuel chapter 16, we see that Samuel anointed King Saul. Saul when Israel desired a king, that he anointed King David even while Saul was still officially king and yet the rejected king because of his continual disobedience toward God. And so it was kings that were anointed as an act of God, formally setting them apart and formally authorizing them to do the work of God. To act upon his behalf. But not only were kings anointed, but priests were anointed as well. We read in in the Old Testament that that in Exodus chapter 28 that God instructed Moses to set apart Aaron and his sons as, as the Levitical priesthood, and in doing so, to take oil and to anoint these men as priests that would serve under the authority of God as authoritative representatives of God and as people who would serve on God's behalf to the people of Israel. And eventually, the word anointed became a title so that by like Psalm 20, we see King David calling himself the anointed one. And so it became, it went from an act to an actual designation until finally the idea of this anointed one, this Messiah, would come, this representative of God who would come and be the resurrect or be the the rescue and the, the, the redemption of God's people. And so eventually, through the history of Israel, the Messiah. The promised anointed one that would come, would come through the lineage of David. And we know that as we think about the, 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 the quickening of, of, of the season of Christmas. Maybe you already have your Christmas tree up, and, and we sing a lot about David at Christmas, right? We sing a lot about that he was born in Bethlehem, in the city of David. And it was just this expectation that David... And his, um, and his lineage would bring forth this promised one. And the reason why is because that's what God had prophesied. In 2 Samuel, God tells David that he will, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, who that was Solomon. But he says, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So all of a sudden now the the Davidic kingdom, the the kingdom that that God had given to David would be a forever kingdom. It would be an eternal kingdom. So this anointed one was going to come from the line of David. We're told throughout the other prophets that he would be filled with the Spirit in Isaiah 61. He would be called the Son of Man in Daniel 7. He would be called Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, Mighty God, and Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9. And that this eternal kingdom would never be destroyed and it would encompass all peoples, nations, and languages. This is what the Word of God taught the Jewish people. But as we see throughout the history of Israel, they continue to sway away from the Word of God to depend more and more upon their traditions to the point that their traditions began to overrule what scripture said. And at one point in in the, the history of Israel, they actually believed that there would be two messiahs that would come. This messianic priestly messiah and this messianic king who would be a messiah. Two different messiahs. You could say that they were pretty confused. But the general belief, and which leads us to our topic today, is the general belief was that whoever this Messiah would come, he would be a mortal man, he would be one from the line of David, but he would not be greater than King David. To call him the son of David is to imply that a son is never greater than the king who ruled over Israel in such a way as David ruled. And Jesus has to correct that theology. No, 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 Pharisees. Actually, the Messiah would be greater than even King David. And we see that in other portions of Scripture where he is trying to show them that, that even David was buried in the grave that saw the corruption of death, and yet it was the Messiah who will defeat that corruption. Well, in the same way, when he asked them, what do you think about the Christ, whose son is he? They say to him, oh, he's the son of David. And in that answer is, there's a guy coming, a political leader, a mortal man who will rise up again and bring great prominence to the nation of Israel, but he will by no means exceed the prominence and the prestige of his father, David. And so Jesus begins to correct their theology. Now hold your place here in Matthew because you're going to need to go to Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is where Jesus quotes the psalm from this morning. And we're going we're to look at Psalm 110 quite a bit today as we look at this. But Jesus' argument is basically drawing out of Psalm 110. And he says, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, And now he's quoting from Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Jesus' question to them. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Now what's interesting, Jesus is doing actually two things here that are really important. He's teaching us about Psalm 110, and he's, and he's identifying the psalm as a Davidic psalm. And what's interesting about that is that in your Bible, in Psalm 110, if you have the title, A Psalm of David, that's actually a, a reference from the, uh, the interpreters of your translation that's not declared a psalm of David in the original Hebrew. Most people considered it a psalm of David They look to this as a messianic psalm. But even in contemporary scholarship, there have been people that have refuted that David wrote this. And so what Jesus does is he affirms that David wrote it in Matthew chapter 22 by referring to it as a psalm of David. So he's helping us there understand that David wrote this psalm 110. Now here's what's interesting. Is a lot of times when... Jesus or the apostles quote from the Old Testament, they are, are showing us and they are drawing out truths that through progressive revelation help us understand the scripture more. And so a lot of times when we're reading uh, the Psalms and we, we might read something that applies literally to David, but it also applies to the future as well. It it might apply to David literally in that time, but then it will also have a future fulfillment. We oftentimes call that double fulfillment. Well, Psalm 110 is not that way. It It is a strictly and uniquely messianic psalm. It is only about the Messiah. Because as David writes it in Psalm 110, he says, the Lord, who is Yahweh, says to my Lord, sit at your right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David's not talking about himself as the Lord here. What David is, 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 is experiencing, as Jesus tells us, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is he is given a prophetic vision of the Messiah. Messiah and the rule and the reign that, the, that Yahweh gives the Messiah. And so what we see here is this beautiful picture of David being able to see into the, the, um, the relationship, the Trinitarian relationship between God the Father and God the Son. This man, this king of Israel, this mortal man, like many of the other prophets, is, is being given this vision to see this relationship between Yahweh as he describes it in, in Psalm 110 as the Lord saying to my Lord who is Adonai who would be the Messiah. This is a, a, an amazing uh, picture that we see here that God would allow us to to understand this scenario better. Now that we have uh, the full picture of Scripture, we understand that this would have occurred as Jesus died upon the cross and he rose from the grave and he ascended to the right hand of the Father, as we're told. And in that right hand of the Father is that place of honor, right? But it's not just a place of honor because he's the Messiah, He's the son of God. So it's not just a place of honor. It's a place where the the father has said to the son, sit here at my right hand and rule and reign over all authority, over all people. Take my authority and rule and reign over all that is before you. And we question that and we say, well, doesn't isn't Jesus God, and hasn't he, isn't he eternally God, and doesn't he already have that rule and reign? And we would say, yes. And yet we have clearly been see, see that in the personhood of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each one of them operates with uh, distinct responsibilities. And here we see this beautiful picture of the Trinitarian relationship where Jesus ascends to heaven and he's sat at the right hand of the Father and he's given this place of honor and authority to rule and reign. That's what sit at my right hand means. And so what is Jesus trying to teach? That the Messiah, this promised one, is not just the son of David, he's the son of God. He's the one that that exists in this relationship with the Father and the Spirit. And what a joy it is to see this relationship revealed to us as human beings. Charles Spurgeon says, how condescending of Jehovah's part to permit mortal ear to hear and a human pen to record the secret converse with co-equal son. How greatly... We should prize the revelation of his private and solemn discourse with the Son, which is made public for the refreshing of his people. I mean, what, an what a crazy and amazing opportunity that David had. And now that David has revealed to us to see this relationship. And Jesus wants these Pharisees to not look at this Messiah as one who is just a mortal man that is just a descendant of David but that he is truly a descendant of God he is God in the flesh so that he can truly accomplish the things that has been promised and spoken of him as the one who would bring good news to the poor who would bind up the brokenhearted, who would proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. The one who will grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. And the oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. That they may be called oaks of righteousness. Righteousness. That the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And so, what these Pharisees needed to see, and what David was able to see, is that this Messiah was more than a mere man, that he was God in the flesh. And as the anointed one, as the one sitting at the right hand of the Father, we understand then that as the Son of God, he is king. We talk about this a lot, that he is king, that he is sovereign, and he rules over all. And as the Messiah coming as king, we understand that that his authority has been given to rule and reign for all eternity, as it was promised in Daniel chapter 7, just as the Old Testament king's We're anointed. Jesus is the anointed one who will rule and reign for all eternity. In Daniel chapter 7, it's prophesied that he has been given dominion and glory and a kingdom. That all the peoples and nations and languages should serve him. That his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Church, the Messiah that you believe in, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the ruler and reigner of uh, the ruler and, and king of all things. And as he rules and reigns, he will eventually have dominion over all peoples, over all languages, over all places upon this earth. And this is difficult for us to see as we hobble into church this morning, battered and bruised from the week before us where the news has discouraged us and the, the difficulties of our life have caused us to be faint-hearted, And so we need to be reminded day after day and week after week that Jesus Christ is the true anointed one. He is the Messiah and he, can, he currently rules and reigns over all. And as Psalm 110 says, and as Jesus tells the Pharisees in in Matthew 22, that as he rules and reigns at the right hand of God, his enemies are becoming his footstool. They are being dominated. He's already defeated at the cross sin and death but in ways that we can't even see through spiritual warfare that goes on beyond our comprehension, he is laying waste to his enemies. He is overcoming temptations. He is overcoming attacks against his church. He is ripping down the strongholds that Satan tries to put up against God and his people. He is doing works today as he did on the cross. Powerful works, supernatural works. And so do we have reason to despair? Do we have reason to be afraid that this Messiah that we believe in is ruler of all? But is he ruler over your life? Is he reigning over all of your life? Are you submitted to his plan for your life? Or are you hoping that he aligns with the plans that you've set forth? You know, the one who truly submits to the Lord does not give the Lord a 50-page prospectus on what he has planned for himself and his family. He doesn't say, now, God, here's what I, I'm going to uh, need to happen in the next 10 to 15 years of my life. I hope that you can get on board. No, that's allowing or that's, that's acknowledging that God somehow is a bystander in your life. Well, I'm going to do this in, in 10 or 15 years, and, and this is my plan, and, Lord, we, we just need you to get on board. No, that's not the sovereign rule of the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus is you guide me. You direct my life. You're the shepherd. I'm just the sheep. Are you submitted to him? Parents, do your, does your family schedule, does your timeline and activities, does it reflect a life that's submitted to the Lord Jesus? Is church a priority? Is God's word central? Is Christ exalted in your home because he's Lord of all? He can't just be Lord of Sunday. He's got to be Lord of all because he's king and he's been given that authority by the Father. He's been given that glory when he ascended to heaven and he sits at the right hand of God. Because the Messiah, the Son of God, is king. But if you look back in Psalm 110, there's another aspect of the Messiah being the anointed one that also applies to the Lord Jesus. Is that not only is he king, but he's also priest. In verse 4, it says that the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a a mysterious figure in the Old Testament. He shows up in Genesis 14 very briefly. He's called the king of Salem but he's also a priest. He has this rule and reign in Salem, and yet Abraham makes an offering and gives it to this man on behalf of God or as a representative of God. He's described to us in very few verses that he is one who serves the Most High God. So he's not serving the Baals, he's serving the one true God, Yahweh, the God of the Bible. And so he's acting in this relationship, brief relationship with Abraham as both priest and king. And then he's gone. We don't see any any more from him. And what's so interesting about Melchizedek is that, that throughout the Old Testament history of Israel, it was forbidden for the kings of Israel to serve as priests. So God made this delineation so much so that, that when, uh, when kings tried to do priestly things, they were punished. And so Melchizedek is a very unique figure that we believe, and I think it's, the, the safe, it's safe to believe, that his existence points to the Lord Jesus as both priest and king. That as, as he said in, in Hebrews chapter 7, if you want to turn there with me, that Jesus the Messiah is from the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews chapter 7, the writer of Hebrews quotes the same psalm, the same messianic psalm, talking about Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, explaining this encounter with Abraham, and then connecting him to Jesus. And the writer of Hebrews says, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. It is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God, who is Jesus. Okay? Okay? And it is not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the, guarantee, the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. He's eternal. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And he wraps it up. For the law appoints men and their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now there's a lot there, okay? There's a lot there. But what we need to see through the thread that runs from Genesis 14 over this priestly king Melchizedek, through this messianic psalm of 1 Psalm 110, which references the Messiah as both a king and a priest, how that ends at Jesus. Who is the priest and the king, the anointed one? Isn't it interesting that only priests and kings were anointed? Isn't it interesting that the word "anointed" became the word for Messiah, which referred to Jesus? And isn't it interesting that Jesus is the one who serves and and rules and reigns as both king and priest. Therefore, Jesus is that perfect, unstained, eternal priest who did not offer another sacrifice. He offered himself as a sacrifice, as the perfect sacrifice The one who as the eternal priest sits at the right hand of God mediating on our behalf. He has brought forth the only way in which you can be reconciled to God. He has brought peace where there is no peace. That's why he's the prince of peace. The priests of the Old Testament can bring peace. The lambs and the bulls and and the doves that were sacrificed could not bring peace because they were imperfect. There had to be continual sacrifices. No, it was Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, who was slain for sinners like you and I. And his sacrifice was perfect, not only because he was the son of David. Which, by the way, represents his humanity, fully man, 100% man, taking on the full weight of all the commandments, fulfilling righteousness for us because we can't be perfect in ourselves. His lineage to David is perfect because of all those promises that pointed throughout the Old Testament to him as as the fulfilling Messiah living the perfect life, representing humanity, bearing the weight of our wrath as the perfect sacrifice, and yet being fully God, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who is the only one that can bear the weight of the wrath of God for our sin. Folks, those are ingredients that nobody else has but Jesus. Those are the the only things that will come together and make the perfect gift of salvation. And so as our priest, not only is he provided a way, but he's our mediator between us and God. He stands interceding, the Bible says, on our behalf. We spent four weeks on prayer and we spent four weeks talking about praying in such a way that we can take our requests to God. And remember that the Israelites were so afraid to touch the mountain of God where his presence dwelt because they would be destroyed. And so while we approach God with fear and trembling, Jesus says, come on in, I've provided the way bring your requests. As we talked about the prayer of lamenting, bring your complaints to God. Acknowledge your struggles. You can't lie to God. You can't conceal in your heart what your your greatest questions and concerns of life. God knows your brain is fragile. Some people are not as endowed with as big, as big of brains as others. God understands our weaknesses and he understands our concerns. And we were, we were reminded through that study and prayer that, that we take our requests to God and, and yet we meditate and we dwell on the truth and the theology of the character and the nature of God that is the soothing balm to our questions. It is the medication for our deepest fears. That's why we're called to trust in him, to believe in him, and to take our request to God through the access that he has provided. So he is the, as the Son of God, he is our King. He is our priest and lastly he is our judge and he's the judge of all says that as he sits at the throne sits on the throne the right hand of God waiting all of God's enemies are becoming a footstool the word footstool is interesting because It's a sign. It's a it's a wording that that reflects total domination. In Joshua, the the idea was is that uh, that 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 he would declare that that he had dominated his enemies, and he used the phrase to the people of Israel to go out and step upon the necks of your enemies. Can you imagine that? Like I thought in my mind, would that be appropriate to demonstrate in my sermon today? Like stepping on someone's neck? Like is, is, that, is that not a better, is, is there not a better sign of, of dominance than, than, than you are literally putting all of your body weight upon someone's neck as they're, as they're laying flat upon the ground? And this is what signifies the power and the might of our God. That all of his enemies will be under the feet of Jesus as he steps upon their necks. All the enemies that scoff and mock him and his people, all those who defy his name to live in their own ways, will be under the feet of the Lord Jesus, and under his holy and unending wrath and anger against their sin. Look at Psalm 110, verse five. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will shatter them. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling the nations with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the whole wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. See, verse 7 is hope. Hope in the midst of destruction. All of the enemies will be destroyed. But this Lord, this Adonai, this Messiah will be comforted. He will drink from the brook. He will live. He will have his head lifted in his rule and his reign. And of course, we know that as Jesus being the promised Messiah, the anointed one, it is understood that a king will also be a judge, that he brings justice. And we see that in Matthew chapter 22 at the end of our psalm today, or at the end of our story today. Jesus makes his point that the Messiah cannot just be the son of David. And what happens in verse 46? He silences the footstool. They can't say a word. No one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. He defeated them. Not just with a verbal argument, not just with a theological battle, but a foreshadowing of what Jesus Christ did upon the cross at the end of this week and will one day do for all eternity with his enemies. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. In heaven... on the earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father I hope that this is a encouragement and uplifting to you today because your enemies are not people You may have some enemies that are people. But the enemy of God is seeking to destroy you. He is seeking to destroy your families. He is seeking to destroy your character. He is seeking to destroy your reputation and your name. And Jesus Christ has defeated him. He's defeated him. And as we walk and live in such a way that honors the Lord Jesus according to his word, that we are literally fighting Satan and the spiritual warfare that we go through day by day with the power of God in, in, in himself. We are not God and yet God dwells within us. We have books filled with words that do absolutely nothing for us, and yet we have the living word that fights spiritual battle day by day. And when we believe and trust in this Jesus, when we understand that he is both fully God and fully man, and we put our trust in him, that we must remember that he does not just provide us forgiveness, he provides us victory. He does not just help us overcome in the future. He helps us overcome today. Because our worldview is embattled. Our children are attacked. Our souls are being tempted. But we must have hope that Jesus is Lord. We must remember that he's given us the power of his Holy Spirit that raises the the dead soul, that heals the sick heart, that brings peace to those that are in bondage to sin. Do not lose hope, but remember that your anointed has come and he lives and reigns forevermore. Interceding as your priest and ruling as your king. We sing a song, and I want to close with this song. I'm not going to sing it. It's one of my favorites that we sing. See, he comes. Those who mocked and scorned his name pierced and nailed him to the tree. Deeply wail well in sorrow grieve when they see, or when they the true Messiah see. Every eye will see the Lord dressed in dreadful majesty, and every knee shall bow before the judge of all eternity. Hallelujah, come, O Lord, or hallelujah, hallelujah, come, O Lord, on earth to reign. Hallelujah, hallelujah, we await that coming day. Father, we do await your power and your might. We find unending hope in your word. We find a supernatural comfort in your presence. And so forgive us, God when we think that this world can offer the same things. Forgive us, God, when we forget of your power, of the victory that you have brought us, of the rule and the reign over every aspect of not our li- only our lives, but the lives of this entire world. Not a blade of grass, Lord, dies upon this earth without your providence. So may we trust you today, God. May we dwell and meditate upon your character and your nature this week. Remind us in the the despair and the difficulty that you rule and reign. And we can trust you.